Welcome to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Thank you, President Worthen. It's so great to be with you today. It's impossible for me to express how much I love this university. Part of that love is tied to how I experienced BYU even before I arrived on this campus. I was raised in a great community, one where I was often seen as a religious minority. By show of hands, how many of you in this audience today grew up where you felt your beliefs were a little different or sometimes challenged by others around you. Just raise your hand if you felt that. That's largely been my experience as I've talked to students across the church educational system. BYU can serve as a refuge and a source of strength for a season in what will certainly be a lifetime of standing up for your beliefs and your values. Now, I had so much fun in high school participating in dances, student government, and athletics. Now, may I just point out, these black and white photos are just because they were cheap in the printing. I wasn't that old when I went to high school. Sometimes, when I was in high school, I did feel like my beliefs were belittled, even in environments that claimed to be inclusive. At one student assembly, I was invited to participate in a dating game in front of the entire high school. It soon became clear that every question they asked was designed to make fun of me for my choices in media, beverages, and dating. You can only imagine what the questions were looking like. I was being mocked for what, to me, I held most dearly. Now, admittedly, when they asked for my favorite song, I thought, well, I can play along with this. And I answered jokingly, I am a child of God. The auditorium laughed, and I thought I was quite clever, right up until they asked me to sing it. So at age 17 in Scottsdale, Arizona, I performed I am a child of God in front of my entire high school. Long before I came to BYU, the idea of attending a university where people shared my values inspired a hope, a hope to hang on through high school. Arriving at BYU was so fun and so exciting. I met friends who became examples to me for the rest of my life. This is a picture of my roommates during college and then again at our 20-year reunion. And while it was a fun spark to be with those friends in those early relationships, their lasting impact was tied to the gospel itself. No one was perfect, but most of us were trying to do our best to become something more in Christ. And we were grateful for BYU's impact in that effort. I also met my wife, Christine. She won my heart with her kindness, 
her depth of character, her ability to nurture, and her love for the gospel. We were married our last semester, and our wedding was right here on campus. Our reception was in the Wilkinson Center. And they gave us those little mints. (laughs) At BYU, I also met faculty, faculty who understood the school's unique mission. I sat riveted in the Mazer Auditorium with John Tanner, a future academic vice president and eventual president of BYU-Hawaii. He taught us how great literature from Milton, Dante, Dostoevsky, and others could be illuminated by the gospel and in turn add insight to our own belief. I studied, in the, I studied international theory, theory in the Kennedy Center under a young Jeff Ringer. I say young, so he won't feel old. Jeff is now an associate international vice president here at BYU. I marveled as he articulately explained how the diversity of scholarship in the higher education enterprise was strengthened by communities of faith like ours here at BYU. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland was the president during my freshman year. One day as I was running into the Jesse Knight building, President Holland was walking down the steps from the administration building. As any exuberant freshman might, I yelled out, Hello, President Holland! To which he applied, Hello, Clark Gilbert from Phoenix, Arizona! I about fell over. He had met me once, I think, but he seemed to know all of the students. As President Holland spoke with such spiritual clarity of the university's destiny, you knew you were in a special place. Rex Lee was the president after my mission, including his time as the U.S. Solicitor General. President Lee had argued nearly 60 cases before the Supreme Court. His ability to craft a well-reasoned defense pushed me to want to deepen my own thinking and my own learning. He inspired us also to replenish what we were given here at BYU. All of these leaders, from the university president to faculty to even my peers, taught me that at BYU, we can perform at the highest levels, engage the world, and never compromise our values or our beliefs. In fact, BYU taught me that we can do this not in spite of our faith, but because of it. Now, these reflections are not meant to be overly nostalgic, but they are meant to communicate what a sacred seat each of you sit in. As Jeffrey R. Holland explained, the real successes of BYU are the personal experiences that thousands here have had. Personal experiences difficult to document or categorize or list. Nevertheless, they are so powerful in their impact on the heart and on the mind that they have changed us forever. You carry those hopes for so many across the church. I saw this when I served as the president of BYU Pathway Worldwide, a literal school in Zion. With over 60,000 enrolled students, there are BYU Pathway sites located everywhere the church is organized. 
Students in areas such as Africa, Brazil, and the Philippines look to you as examples. Look at those students in Africa gathered around one computer, sharing it for just the hope to have access to a church education. They would do anything to receive the opportunities you have. They would do anything to be here on this campus, to live in this community, and to be sitting here in this devotional today. I'm grateful for the way President Kevin J. Worthen has continued to teach and elevate the unique mission of BYU. BYU's spiritual emphasis can be seen in its very mission statement. I've added the italics here, but let's read this. The mission of Brigham Young University, founded, supported, and guided by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is to assist individuals in their quest for perfection and eternal life. BYU is not simply a university where members of the church happen to attend in large numbers. Rather, this is a religious university with a religious purpose. The governance structure of BYU is also unique. In his book, The Dying of the Light, The Disengagement of Colleges and Universities from Their Christian Roots, Robert Burktel identifies three primary factors that pull many other universities away from their spiritual moorings. First, faculty promotion is outsourced to secular disciplines. Second, funding moves from the sponsoring institution to outside sources. And third, university leadership is somehow decoupled from the sponsoring religious institution. Let me explain why this will not happen at BYU. First, prophets have foretold the significance this university will play in the kingdom of God. Moreover, we have remarkable faculty who love BYU and came here precisely because they believe in its spiritual mission. But most importantly, BYU's anchoring organizational structure will keep its oversight and government squarely tied to the church itself. By design, the chairman of the Church Board of Education and the Board of Trustees of BYU is the prophet, Russell M. Nelson. The vice chairs are his two counselors, President Dallin H. Oaks and President Henry B. Eyring. The rest of the board is comprised of an executive committee chaired by Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, who currently is paired with another apostle, Elder D. Todd Christofferson. They are joined by a member of the Presidency of the Seventy and the General Relief Society President, Sister Jean B. Bingham. Others on the board include the General Young Men's and Young Women's Presidents, the Presiding Bishop, and other general authorities as assigned. I want you to think about that for a minute. Think about the experiences, the background, and the capabilities of your Board of Trustees here for BYU. The board is chaired by a former medical school professor, three former university presidents, two of whom were president here at this university, the head of one of the largest women's organizations in the world, and other leaders with robust educational and administrative experience. By any external standard, this is a remarkable board. 
But more importantly, these are spiritual, even prophetic leaders. They pray over you. They counsel about your needs. They receive revelation for this institution. They love BYU, and they love you. And they invest in you. The Church Board of Education and its executive committee meet with all of the presidents of each of the CS institutions twice a month, once in executive committee and once in the full board. Those meetings are coordinated by the Church Commissioner of Education, who is assigned as the liaison between the board and the universities. Every major expenditure, all faculty appointments, key curriculum decisions, and the selection of university presidents are reviewed and approved by the Church Board of Education. So when BYU's mission statement declares that the university is founded and guided by the church, founded, supported, and guided by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, know that this is part of the very design of this university. BYU is designed for a distinct spiritual purpose. As Elder Holland has taught, BYU will become an educational Mount Everest only to the degree it embraces its uniqueness, its singularity. We can mimic every other university in the world, and we would get a bloody nose in the effort. And the world would still say, BYU who? No, we must have the will to be different and to stand alone if necessary. Being a university second to none in its primary role as an undergraduate teaching institution that is unequivocally true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this has been a long preamble to at least three things I hope you will understand and feel about this school in Zion. One is BYU can change you in lasting ways if you will let it. Two, As students of BYU, you carry the hopes of so many across the entire church. And three, BYU is prophetically led and will remain a spiritual beacon to the world. My assignment today as a general authority, but also as the church commissioner of education, is to focus on the spiritual and moral purposes of this flagship university in the church's educational system. Our faith in BYU remains high, and just as Justin Collins recently declared from the same stage, I don't know where to keep that faith if not in the hearts of you students. Let me next share a story of the perilous times we live in. Christine and I have five daughters at home. It's a busy household. Our youngest daughter is eight-year-old Claire. Several months ago, the older girls picked a Star Wars show for our family movie night. Claire was not happy. She said, I don't want to watch this movie. It's scary. Begrudgingly, she nested into me and said, Dad, the good guys win in the end, right? To which I replied, Claire, yes, the good guys do win in the end. But sometimes it takes a little bit of time and some patience and maybe even some faith. We do live in scary times. As I listen to students across the church educational system, 
I hear young people tell me they're worried about getting married or having children, in part because the world is in such commotion. As Elder Anderson has stated, my young friends, the world will not glide calmly to the second coming of the Savior. David Brooks' recent column in the New York Times is telling, as Americans' hostility towards one another seems to be growing, their care for one another seems to be falling. Some of our poisons must be sociological. The fraying of social fabric last year, uh, the fraying of the social fabric last year, Gallup reported uh, in a study that the U.S. church membership falls below the majority for the first time. In 2019, the Pew Center had a report that stated the U.S. has the world's highest rate of children living in single-parent households. Some of the poisons, David Brooks goes on to say, must be cultural. But there also must be something, some spiritual or moral problem at the core of this. Our challenges are not just sociological. Even David Brooks is pointing to some spiritual unraveling that's happening in our society. Rod Dreher puts it in his longer historical context, quote, the long history from a world, from a medieval world racked with suffering, but pregnant with meaning, has delivered us to a place once unimaginable for its comfort, but emptied of significance and connection. The West has lost the golden thread that binds us to God, creation, and to each other. Unless we find it again, there is no hope of halting our dissolution. We have been loosed, but we do not know how to bind. President Nelson more recently has taught, during these perilous times of which the Apostle Paul prophesied, Satan is no longer even trying to hide his attacks on God's plan. Pointing to these same challenges in the last days, Nephi described three ways the adversary will try to deceive us. First, he will stir us up to anger against each other and against that which is good. Second, he will pacify us into not caring, say it doesn't matter. Relax, Elder Gilbert, you're overreacting. And finally, if those don't work, he will try to convince us that there is no right or wrong in a modern argument for moral relativism. Well, no, man, no wonder so many students worry about their future. My message today is that we can find peace even in all of this commotion. President Nelson explained, the Lord has declared that despite today's unprecedented challenges, those who build their foundations upon Jesus Christ and have learned how to draw on his power need not succumb to the unique anxieties of this era. I'd like to play a short clip of President Nelson talking about these times when men's and women's hearts are failing them. I was in a small airplane, and all of a sudden, the engine on the wing caught fire. It exploded, and burning oil was 
cord all over the right side of the airplane, and we started to dive toward the earth. We were spinning down to our death. Oh, this woman across the aisle, I, I just was so sorry for her. She was just absolutely uncontrollably hysterical. And I was calm. I was totally calm. Even though I knew I was going down, down to my death, I was ready to meet my maker. We didn't crash. We didn't die. The spiral dive extinguished the flame. The pilot got control and started the other engine up. We made an emergency landing out in the field. But I thought through that experience, if you've got a faith, you can handle difficulties knowing that with an eternal perspective that all will be well. In Luke 21, the earth shall be in distress Nations with perplexity, the seas and the waves roaring. Men's hearts failing them for fear. What we're seeing is a prediction that in these latter days, people will be afraid. Men's hearts are failing, and that includes women, because they forget their identity and their purpose. Heartaches will come. I've lived through the death of a wife and the death of a daughter. I've seen the troubles that divorce brings. Children or grandchildren go astray. Disability. Illness, injuries. To the individual who is weak in the heart, fearful in the heart, be patient with yourself. Perfection comes not in this life, but in the next life. Don't demand things that are unreasonable, but demand of yourself improvement. As you let the Lord help you through that, He will make the difference. I love President Nelson's quiet calmness. Can you feel it? In general conference, he explained why he remained so confident, even in tumultuous times. Quote, My dear brothers and sisters, these are the latter days. If you and I are to withstand the forthcoming perils and pressures, it is imperative that we each have a spiritual foundation built upon the rock of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. For any of you who are worried or suffering, may I close with four attributes of Jesus Christ that can bring us peace and comfort in these perilous times. First, we don't have to be perfect. Christ takes us where we are. I'd like to introduce you to the Vargas family. Christine and I met them on a mission tour in San Antonio, Texas this fall. Andrea was serving as a primary president. Luis was not a member. The missionaries were scheduled to an exterior tour of the temple 
And the mission president shared with me ahead of time that one of the main factors holding Brother Vargas back was a fear that somehow he had to be perfect to join the church. At the start of the tour, I turned to Brother Vargas and I said, hey, before we start, can I just make it clear? No one in this church, no one is perfect, save Jesus Christ. We are all just trying to do our best to become something more in Christ. The missionary paused, missionaries paused, not knowing I had known that about Brother Vargas, and looked at me like, whoa, he really is a general authority. <laughs> and, and, I, and I had to explain later, no, your mission president just told me what's going on. Um, but they gave a great tour of the temple that evening. And at the end, they said, Brother Vargas, how are you feeling? He turned to his wife. And he said, honey, I've been coming with you to church for five years. I want to join this church so I can become a better father to our daughter and a better husband. Sister Vargas began to cry. She jumped into his arms. Their daughter wasn't sure what was happening, but she knew it was good, and she rushed in and hugged them as well. Brothers and sisters, you don't need to be perfect to be in this church. You just need to do your best, which includes repenting and striving to becoming something more in Jesus Christ. Second, Christ loves us even when we do not reciprocate that love. In Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, there's an allegorical story of Christ with the Grand Inquisitor. Christ is returned to the earth, but rather than rejoicing, the Grand Inquisitor has him locked up, berates him for giving men agency and allowing us to make such poor choices. After being forced to listening to repeated vitriol from the Grand Inquisitor, the reader's poised for a bold response from the Savior. Instead, Christ simply leans in and kisses his accuser. In this season of polarizing discourse, I'm grateful for Christ's model of charity and love, even when we feel attacked for our most cherished beliefs. He inspires us to respond with empathy and kindness. Third, Christ repairs the breaches in our lives. Last Christmas, we were settling in for the evening, and one of our children announced her shower nozzle had broken. Water was spraying everywhere, and as I ran up to investigate, all I could do was start emptying buckets of water into the sink. I'm not very handy, and reaching a plumber on Christmas night was not going to happen. We were desperate. Unfortunately, a friend came to our rescue and helped us do what we couldn't do for ourselves. He turned off the master water line and fixed the breach. Recently, I visited with an individual who had made terrible mistakes. Mistakes that cost him his marriage and other blessings associated with this gospel. He had worked through the process of repentance, but still felt insufficient. He reflected to me and a colleague, I've repented to the Lord, 
I've apologized to my family, but there are so many countless others who my decisions have impacted, and I won't be ever, ever able to track them down. My assigned companion listened and then replied, you can't. Those mistakes are like leaves to the wind. Only the Savior can heal those wounds. Isaiah foretold the role the Savior would play when he said, he shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. In these troubled times, Christ is the repairer of the breaches in our lives. Fourth, Christ will suffer us in our infirmities. As a young missionary in Japan, I received a knock on our door late one night, just before bedtime. Our mission president was standing there in the rain at the apartment's threshold. Elder Gilbert, get dressed. We're going to see Elder Matsuo, whose father was dying of cancer. I immediately assumed what had happened. But as I loaded into the mission vehicle, President Matsumori turned to me and explained that the missionary's mother had been killed in an accident. He then said, pray that we'll be able to empathize and understand what will comfort this missionary. I felt overwhelmed and inadequate. I can still remember the windshield wipers going back and forth as we drove in silence. Suddenly the Spirit brought Alma 7.12 to my heart. And he will take upon them their infirmities that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people. Now I knew that the atonement of Jesus Christ allowed us to overcome sin. I knew that Christ would help us overcome death through the resurrection. But I didn't know until that night on the Osaka freeway that Christ would comfort us in our struggles, in our suffering, when life didn't seem fair. I didn't know what that young missionary was facing. How could I? But through the miracle of the atonement of Jesus Christ, there was one who did. For any of you in this audience who are struggling with challenges that don't seem fair, don't turn to the world. Please turn to your covenants that bind us to Jesus Christ. He can comfort you in a way no one else can. In the sacristy of Spain's Toledo Cathedral hangs a painting by El Greco entitled The Disrobing of Christ. The artist depicts the Savior en route to his crucifixion. You can almost hear the cacophony of the crowd pressing in on him. Even Christ's disciples are looking down and appear to have lost all hope. Even the color of their countenances has paled. But observe the Savior. He stands with radiance in the center of the painting. He is full of hope and confidence. And unlike everyone else in the scene, he is looking heavenward to his Father. What Christ knew is that despite the tumult we feel around us, God will prevail in the end.
C.S. Lewis makes this point in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan characteristically and gently explains to Susan and Lucy how the evil designs of the witch would not ultimately win. Quote, It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there was magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she had looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have known that when a willing victim, who had committed no treachery, was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. President Nelson has declared, my brothers, my dear brothers and sisters, these are the latter days. If you and I are to withstand the forthcoming perils and pressures, it is imperative that we each have a firm spiritual foundation built upon our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So, Dad, the good guys win in the end, right? Yes, they do, Claire. But in this case, only, only in and through the Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope each, as each of us faces the commotion of these latter days, we will remember that Christ will take us where we are. He will love us even when we do not reciprocate that love. He will repair, repair the breaches in our lives, and Christ will succor us in our infirmities. I am so grateful to our Heavenly Father his beloved Son, and our Savior. And I encourage you to invite them to bring peace into your life, even in these perilous times. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.